welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. And today we got a Q&A. All right. <laughs> I don't think we have any banter banter or announcements today. Um, no, just cool shit, I guess. Uh, updates. You know, um, happy Easter for everybody. Hope you had a good fucking Easter. Um, over here, it was literally like, dude, it was weird how rainy it was. And then it just like, l- it was like Easter blessing, just yeah. tons of sun, heat. And then it was back to pouring yeah. down rain. Yeah. I was like, that's perfect for all, all the right. East, the kids doing Easter egg hunts. Could not have been more perfect. Um, so that was cool. Uh, the tailored mobile is done. This will go out after I post. <laughs> so I'm stoked about that. Um, finally have a company truck. Now I got to. Email my accountant and see if I can write that shit off. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've been trying to write off my truck for so long. He's like, dude, you don't need to drive anywhere to do what you do. Like, You can't write it off. Like, what if it was like a marketing tool? You can write off that, but you can't write off your truck. But I'm going to come back at him with some other technicalities. Because it meets a certain tonnage. It's weird. In Washington, you can write it off if, you're, if your vehicle is over a certain weight. Interesting. Like, what does that have to do with anything? As soon as you have a big ass car, you can write it off. Like, huh? No idea. Um. Anyway, I'm trying to find a loophole. Yeah. Write that shit off, pay it off. Um. But I'm stoked about that. Got the tailored logo on it, the wrap over it. Um. Very very pumped about that. Um. What else? I feel like there was something else I was gonna mention. Oh, I'm flying out to Austin. Two days from now, Friday. So as you guys are listening, this this goes out Monday, right? So I'll be just coming back. Speaking on uh, a mix of things, and I'm excited because I'll be sharing the stage with Brad, my good friend, Jordan Syatt. I'm going to go hang out with him and Brad one of the nights, uh, Sam Miller, Joseph Sheely, uh, a lot of good speakers, uh, Joel. Um, so I'm excited to just see everybody get up there again, talk about the power of authenticity in coaching and uh, unforgotten or not unforgotten because that would mean they haven't been. Forgotten. I need to change that slide. I think I put unforgotten. That would be an oxymoron. Big difference. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Huge difference. Uh, The forgotten strategies of building an online coaching business, which is basically long form content, uh, SEO, so search engine optimization. So actually using blogs and YouTube and things like that to gain the attraction of people. And uh, actually, this is going to be a mind blowing part. Being a good coach, that is actually part of the forgotten strategy because people are very, uh, it's actually funny. Now that since this is going to air out, after I've already spoke, I'm excited because one of the slides, like I say, like um, I'm talking about basically like how long does your Instagram post live? Like what's the life expectancy of an Instagram post? Yeah. And the answer is 24 hours, right? Wow. 48 if you like crush the post. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe 72 if you're like got hundreds of thousands of followers and you're going viral because you think about it like every once in a while somebody's post kills it and you'll see it a couple days later. Yeah. But most of the time you see it for a day or two and gone. Yep. And nobody will ever see it. So if the, if your audience isn't on at the right time to see it, you're kind of fucked. Totally. And the Instagram algorithm's crazy right now. Shitty. Um, and you know, then looking at what's the life expectancy of a, a blog or a podcast or YouTube. And the, the truth is they live forever. People actually scroll through. Um, I told you that lady commented the other day and said, um, I just found you and I've already gone through 30 episodes. So she obviously found me, went to the podcast and starts listening through, right? That's those podcasts are going to live forever. Yeah. Um, the blog, like we, we brought on a new client that Googled 
reverse diet transformation. And we popped up everywhere on the first page of Google and on the first page of images for multiple what? times for reverse dieting. Yep. But specifically of reverse diet transformation of a client I put through. It's the very first image on Google search, which is really dope and it's not easy to do. No. Um, so I'm not going to teach people the strategies on how to do it necessarily because that would be like a four day workshop yep. and tens of thousands of dollars, like literally, cause that's what I've spent to learn. <laughs> but the point is, is to impress upon people is like, I wrote that blog at the beginning of, I actually found the date and put it on there. It's the, the beginning of 2019. Okay. So we're over three years since that blog aired. It still lives. It still lives. And yeah. it's the number one fucking spot on the feed of Google, literally. So the point of it is, is utilizing old techniques. This is why old, like older online businesses understand these things and they don't get so married to Instagram that they freak out when the algorithm goes whack because they have these strategies built and that's their foundation, right? So talking about a lot of those things, um, and I'm, I'm really excited about because it it's something I'm passionate about. And I think in order to be able to do those things properly, you actually have to be a really good coach because you can't write a really informative blog or do a really informative YouTube video that's longer than 10 minutes or um, record a podcast that's 30 minutes to an hour if you don't know what you're doing, if you yeah. don't have a good amount of info. So I think it weeds out uh, the bad coaches, but it also teaches people like, Hey, if you have insecurities about being able to do it, maybe you got to take a step back and actually go educate yourself more. Right. Or you're worried about the wrong things. Yeah. Like one of the things to talk about is the people you're worried about seeing this that like, cause I used to do this in my head of like, well, what if like Alan Aragon or Eric Helms or Lane Norton sees this and I'm early in my career, like number one, they don't give a shit. Number <laughs> two, they're never going to see it. I'm nobody compared to them, right? So a lot of times people get in their own head about these uh, figures in the industry that they're so worried about judging them, right? Number one, if your information's right, they're not going to judge you. Number two, they're probably not going to see it anyway. One, because the algorithm sucks. Two, because they're so far ahead of you because they've been doing it so much longer. And number three, you're not trying to sell them. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're not trying to help them. They can help themselves. They know what they're doing. They're at the top of their game. Um, but as I'm going through this, I, I have a slide and it says, uh, you know, like talking about where do people search for help? Do they search the discover feed and type in hashtag how to carb cycle or do they go to fucking Google and search how to carb cycle? Obvious answer. They go to Google, right? Nobody searches on the discover feed, a hashtag to answer their questions. They scroll really fast through like booty pictures and dudes flexing in the mirror. Right. And so I'm like, so let me ask you, who would you trust more? And then I like pull up some pictures and it's like, uh, I typed in a uh, TikTok fitness influencer on Google and I found like this like ranking like the top 10 influencers and the first one's like this big icon and they had like these profile things like oh this is perfect so I put it in there and it's like uh is it specific people yeah and it's like I can't remember his name but he's like looking at the camera with like a Zoolander look and then it says 22 years old 4.4 million followers and I'm like okay Zoolander 22 years old nothing against younger people like I started when I was 19 yeah but Okay. Next one, it's like this chick with boxing gloves on and it's like 19 years old. Uh, and then she has millions of followers and she's just like a super hot chick with boxing gloves on who probably doesn't actually box. And then, <laughs> and then I click it again and I created my own TikTok profile using theirs. Uh, and I, I took a screenshot of Jordan Syatt's, uh, cause he's going to be in the crowd. 
because um, he's one of the speakers, obviously, but he has this video that he just posted and he's like, stupid exercise you should never do. And there's one he's doing the crab walk. Did you see that? Yeah. He's got the mullet wig and a cigarette in his mouth. Yeah. And there's this part where he's humping the camera and I screenshot it while he's humping the camera and I put it in there <laughs> with Syat <laughs> Fitness. Oh my. Dude, I was dying. It looks so funny because as I'm going through it, it's like, who would you trust more? Him? Her, and then it's Syed, and he's, oh like, humping the camera. <laughs> he's going to fucking cry laughing. I can't wait. By this time, he already laughed because you guys are hearing this after the fact. But um, very excited about that slide. That is awesome. Um, but it's a, it's, a really, it's a really good, like, I think it's going to be a really good presentation because it's something I look through all the speakers. Um, and I feel bad because, like, the people who run the event have, like, emailed three times now. Hey, we need your presentation so we can mm. get things ready. And I'm like, almost done. <laughs> like, working on it. Damn started it today um <laughs> they probably listen to your podcast but the cool thing is is that why well, I, I do that because by now i actually see people sharing see who's like i can see people talk about who's gonna go i can see what the speakers are talking about because they've released like the actual list and now i can actually go in there and i read the list and then i hit up john i was like hey can i change my talk a little bit because i can see what's going to happen now and i'm able to kind of adapt it to what i think people need to hear you know um but yeah, no, I'm stoked. It'll be fun. Never been to Austin either. So dope. Like, that'll be cool. I don't know how much time I'll have to do anything, but hopefully it'll be nice out. And yeah. There so. you go. Cool. All oh, right. Shit. Let's uh get into the questions here, guys. We got the first question coming from Andre Corzome. We are going to he says, Why is it not recommended to train to failure every single workout? That's a cool name. Andre Corzone. Corzom. Corzom. Um, why is it not recommended to train to failure every workout? Uh, it's not recommended for multiple reasons. Uh, so here's a few. Number one, if you train to failure, okay, so there's there's a list of things that we have to kind of like, uh, I guess just understand and then prioritize. And it also depends on what you're after in your goals, right? So number one, we have different levels of fatigue from different things that we're doing things being intensity volume frequency exercise selection so on and so forth um we also have things that influence our capacity to handle that fatigue so a good example of this is uh stress capacity and there's actually a research study on stress that actually shows negative so and and you could most people would understand that this is a thing if you're too stressed out you're more likely to get sick uh you're more likely to die young. Like there's a lot of things that are stress can literally kill you, right? Like there's a lot of things that can negatively happen if you are too stressed out, but they did a study and it showed that it's, it's less about the stress applied to you, like the body and the brain and everything's actually pretty fucking resilient. And it's more about your ability to comprehend and handle and perceive that stress. So they found that people who psychologically dealt with stress better, meaning like I just choose to not like think it's stressful which I call stress capacity, your ability to handle it, they don't have any of those negative repercussions. They don't have uh, as much anxiety or stress or depression or illness or anything like that because they consciously choose to just perceive it differently. Mm. You got to train your brain to do that, right? The reason I'm saying that is because stress in your life can influence how that fatigue from training influences you. So we have things like volume and intensity and frequency and exercise selection that are going to fatigue you X amount, but if you are also somebody who doesn't handle stress well, it might fatigue you even more. And if you're somebody who doesn't handle stress well and has a lot of work stress, life stress, emotional stress, it's gonna do it even worse, right? So 
we we have all these things to kind of consider and focus on. Then we have to add the fact that there's a level of effort that one, we have to accomplish in order to achieve results and B, have to recover from because there's a stress adaptation uh, curve essentially. And we stress the body and then we recover so that we can adapt. And until we fully recover and are adapted from that, then we can re-stress the body with the same stimulus. Meaning if like today, did you guys strength train today? This uh, morning? Not yet. Okay. Um, I just, I, when you guys were out there, that's what I was assuming you're doing. So what are you training today? Legs. Legs. Um, if you were to try to train legs tomorrow, you'd be shooting yourself in the foot because mm-hmm. the stress adaptation curve would not be finished yet, right? Maybe by Friday or Saturday, you'd be fine because you stress it today and then by Friday or Saturday, the, the recovery curve would have finished and then you can stress it again, right? So we have to pay attention to that. And the greater the stress, the longer the recovery takes to fully adapt from it. Or the less, uh, the, the, the worse you handle that stress, the longer that recovery curve okay, is totally. as well. Um, so I'm saying all this stuff because you have to like kind of dissect all these things and then pay attention to them first and foremost. Then we have to look at what the research shows. So if we go to absolute failure, we have a greater systemic fatigue. And systemic fatigue or global fatigue, they say, is basically globally the fatigue is muscular. It's also tendons and ligaments and your joints. It's also uh, so structural. It's also neurological all of these aspects, um, you could even say uh, metabolic as well, your, your respiratory cardiovascular system, all these things get fatigued, right? So the the level of which how high each one gets fatigued is different depending on what we do. So taking your sets to failure is dependent on what kind of failure you're going to or what you're going to failure with, right? So if we know the global fatigue of an exercise is very low because it's an easy exercise like lateral raises, we should go to failure because – It's not going to fuck you up that bad long-term. The stress adaptation curve is easy to accomplish. But if you go to failure on a bench press, it's going to take a lot longer. And you're more likely to risk uh, issues with tendons, ligaments, joints, neurological, all that stuff. So we have to pay attention to all this stuff. And the reason I say that too is because I don't think it's a black and white statement of we shouldn't go to failure on anything. I think that it's that we shouldn't consistently go to failure all the time on certain things mainly compound lifts. But I also think there's an issue with the research. And I've talked to more and more about this, especially as I've experimented with this with myself and other people. So, and we have Jackson on, is his Aaron this week? As this airs? So this, so yeah. Yeah. Yep. So you guys will hear it. Uh, Check out the the episode with Jackson this week because we talk about this a lot and he is a researcher. So it's nice to have a the point of view from him. It's next week. Yeah. Greg Wells was. Oh, okay. So uh, the next week. Pay attention for Jackson's yeah. podcast drop. It's coming up soon. Um, we, we have t- a lot in the queue. <laughs> yeah, and we talk about this. And so basically research shows that you should have an RIR of four, reps in reserve of four, which would be like an RPE six, right? Um, at least – so they say you can maximize results at an RIR of four. Um, you shouldn't go over two basically, which is to say that you shouldn't leave just one or none in the tank. I completely disagree. I think that that's uh, – I don't think that's a smart way of looking at it. If we look at – for example, powerlifting, we look at bench squat deadlift. I could get on board with that because I can gain the same amount of neurological strength going at 80% of my one rep max for one rep as I could 100% of my one rep max, relatively speaking. Maybe not exactly the same, but close enough to build enough strength to progress. But I would recover so much easier from going 80% than 100%. And so I could return and do that 80% again. And by the end of the month, quarter, year, I would have been able to do more lifts at that 80% and I would have got stronger because of it. However, if we're talking about muscle growth or, or higher volumes or doing more 
exercises than just the bench squat deadlift that have this high injury risk and we're not just focused on neurological capability, I think we need to push that boundary a little bit more. Number one, mentally, that's just not a good way to approach things, in my opinion. Like going into it knowing like I'm going to leave three or four on the tank. Like I'm just going to go kind of easy today. You should save that for a deload. That's a weak mindset and I don't think that leads to success in anything in life. I think you should go into it giving your all in everything you do. Right? You don't go into being a parent with an RIR4. Like I'm going to kind of try today and leave, yeah. a, leave a few in the tank. <laughs> like this is not how you, you do it. So I think that you have to approach it a little bit differently. I also know that there's a lot of research showing that people do not know how to accurately record their RP or RIR. Um, and the most popular, the best study to de- demonstrate this is they had a bench press. They put people on the bench press. I've said this many times. They said, put your 10 rep max on the bar. You're going to go to absolute failure. You'll have a sparter so you can't get hurt. Um, right? So literally go until the bar's on your chest and we'll lift it off to you basically. Um, and I think the lowest was 12. I think there might have been one person who actually got 10. And so there was one person in this whole study that actually accurately did it. Everybody else got way above 12. I think the average was 16, lowest was 12, and then the highest was like 26 reps. But it just goes to show that even people who they considered resistance trained individuals, so gen pop advanced lifters, did not know how to accurately measure their RPE going into a study like this. And I've experienced this because I've gone into my training lately, and I've done this for the last probably like four or five weeks, and I've been putting my clients to this, and they're actually really liking it too, not all my clients, but some of them, where we uh, leave two reps in the tank, the first couple sets, one rep in the tank, the, the third, like let's say it's a four rep set. We'll go RIR2, RIR2, RIR1, last set you go to complete failure. And what I've seen is I go leg extension, RIR2, okay, I hit however much weight, um, I think, it, like let's say there's 150 pounds of plates on there, and I do 10 reps, and I have two in the tank. Then I do 10 reps again, two in the tank, and then I add like a 10 and I do 10 and I have one in the tank, right? I add a little bit of weight because I'm going to do RIR. And then I go to failure and I hit 15, which doesn't make any mathematical sense because if I was actually doing an RIR of one, I would have got been able to do more weight or gone more reps than 10, right? And especially on the fourth set after I've already fatigued my muscle, that shouldn't happen. Yeah. Realistically, I should be able to do the same weight for like maybe one more rep, actually literally one more rep because I would did an RIR one on the last set, but it hasn't been the case with almost anything I've done. And I've been putting up bigger numbers and lifting heavier. Um, and it wasn't until this week that I started feeling the, the effects of the deficit actually like kind of changing my energy, but it showed me that even myself, like, man, I'm not even predicting this accurately enough. And it's why I probably haven't really needed to do a lot of deloading And this week's a deload. And I was like, I need this deload because I felt the effects of actually going hard enough and I can see it in my physique. I can see it in my clients' lifts and their physiques too. So point of this whole like rant is that I actually don't think there's anything wrong with going to failure. I think that you should. Number one, you should go to failure with good technique with somebody watching on the bigger lifts, mainly to be able to understand what an RPE 10 or an RR0 actually is. Like really, really test yourself and see what that feels like because I think most people, they quit mentally way before they quit physically. I agree. And, and it's hard to do that. Like, um, even on like the assault bike, like we were talking about it too. Like if, if, if I put a gun to your head, you could have gone for two hours. You know what I mean? But like after 20 minutes and I did the same thing. I got off the bike in 20 minutes yesterday and was like, fuck. Mm-hmm. But if you had a gun to your head, like we would make it happen. A lot of it is mental and that's totally fine. There's nothing against that. And it doesn't mean like you should go for two hours next time. But the point is, is like, I think if you understood what it meant to go to failure or like you did a one minute as hard as you fucking could until you literally couldn't move 
or like you wanted to cry and leave, like then you would understand what true failure is. And then it, you can actually gauge RP and RIR. Totally. Now, if you don't want to do that, that's fine, but don't rely on RIR or RPE, which is also fine too. You don't need to. But I think it's inaccurate for most people until they go to failure. So I think it's important to go to failure at least once or twice. Um, and granted, I still use RPE and RIR in my programming because I think it's still a useful tool to help people try to learn this and use it properly. Number two, I think that going to failure is actually probably useful for most people in most cases because if we think of, you know, even in a research study, right, a lot of times when we do, so like volume research, right, there's there's a lot of volume research and there's one volume study that did 40 sets per muscle group per week. Um, so for you to, like Travis, to understand this, like your chest volume right now is probably at like, 10 to 12 sets per week, maybe. And that's because I have you doing no overhead pressing because I want to keep your shoulders healthy for a little bit before we get like heavier and heavier because we've had shoulder issues in the past. That's one fourth of the amount of the volume in this thing, right? And that's higher than the rest of your body parts because I'm taking out shoulder work so Mm -hmm. I can do more chest pressing, right? But that's just to go to prove a point. Like how the fuck do you do 40 sets of that muscle group per week? Can you imagine that? Like that's just stupid. You'd be in here doing chest press almost every day. But the reason is because when you look at all those research studies, they go bench press, leg press, lat pull down. So they're just tracking chest, lat, quad, 40 sets per muscle group per week. Oh, well, okay. I could do bench, lat pull down in leg, uh, leg press every single day of the week for a short-term study, and I could definitely accomplish 40 uh, sets per week. But the reason I'm saying this is because like, if we're doing sets to failure and the study is doing big compound lifts, you're going to get system like uh, systemically and globally fatigued way faster, right? So I think that you should be targeting failure training on certain movements that are d- like best for you. And we're going to drop a YouTube video soon that is like how to choose the best exercises for you. And that's a good example. It's like finding an exercise that doesn't cause any pain, that your joints feel good doing, that you get a good pump and you can feel it in the targeted muscle, and you know you recover really well from it. Perfect. You got the technique down. The stimulus is great. The fatigue's not too high. Go to failure. Why not? Something like a deadlift, you could say, oh, I do really well with deadlift. Yeah, but it also compromises your low back if you go too heavy. It also is very neurologically draining. It's also very taxing on your joints, you know? So now you see like, okay, I shouldn't go to failure all the time on those ones. Um, so understanding the difference between these things so that you can go to failure when necessary, especially if your goals are body composition changes, I actually think it's really good. I think there's nothing wrong with it. I think that it's going to teach you a lot. I think that it can actually allow you to train as hard as you need to train sometimes. And I think that there's a lot of exercises that you're probably leaving quite a bit in the tank that should be going to failure. So something you can try if you want to kind of steal what my method has been lately that has taught me a lot about this personally uh, and has made my results better as well as some of my clients is to, on everything but compound lifts, um, unless your compound lift is something safe, like one of mine right now is a T-bar row. I'm not going to fuck myself up on a T-bar row. But I don't do this on a squat or a bench press or a deadlift. Um, if, if you want to use this, like do a descending RIR. So you start your sets by leaving a couple reps in the tank. You, if you leave two to three reps in the tank on your first set, you are still being very stimulative. It's still a very productive set. And then the next set, you leave a little less in the tank, so one to two. And then the final set, you go to failure. And you'll see, soon you'll realize like, oh, next week I can actually go heavier on that first set that I left two, three in the tank because I wasn't actually leaving two and three in the tank. I was leaving like three to four. And you learn a lot about your body and you push yourself to the, the, like, the amount of tension and mechanical tension and metabolic fatigue and 
all those things that actually lead to growth, you're pushing yourself to that limit that you need to push yourself to. And you're doing it in a way that's safe, you know, especially if you're doing bodybuilding style training. Cause a lot of the exercises like you're not going to get hurt. Yeah. You know, um, but it's not recommended because it can cause, um, global fatigue. That's too high. So you can injury risk goes up, uh, neurological, um, fatigue goes up, metabolic fatigue goes up, but we also know that in real world setting, that's not the case. It's not black and white across the board. I think that there's, you have to, you have to be intelligent about these things. Totally. So I love it, man. All right. We got next question comes from Rada 0290. It says lean gaining phases. Can you explain more? Um, lean gaining phases are the idea that you are going to gain muscle without gaining fat. Um, there's a lot of verbiage for it. Lean gaining, main gaining, uh, gain taining. There's a lot of them. Um, I think gain taining is stupid. <laughs> I think main gaining is stupid. I think lean gaining is, is good. I think lean gaining is fine. To me, and different people have different definitions. Some people combine all those together. Main, main gaining and, and tain, no, wait. gain taining and main gaining, very hard. Tongue twisters. Tongue twister. Those sometimes get lumped in with others. The idea with those is that I'm going to put my calories at maintenance and I'm going to slowly build muscle. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. However, I do think that doing so will lead to very, very slow progress. And I think that's, that's the biggest issue is if you're going way too slow with progress, I think eventually you just burn out. Like I just don't, I don't see it as a very productive thing. I think that you're, you'll be gaining at such a slow rate that you really can't see progress. It's unmotivating. Um, and sometimes you wonder if you even are making progress and you could be wasting time. So sometimes it doesn't make sense because you need to have measurable outcomes in order to know that you're not wasting your time. Um, and if you're gaining too slow, that could be the case. Now, I think that doing those approaches is totally fine as a newbie or as somebody so I would still cons- I would consider you a newbie if you have never strength trained before. So even for the people who have dieted many times, but maybe they're doing like circuit training or classes or anything like that, if you switch over and start doing like strength training and, and a little bit of bodybuilding style programming and stuff like that, I think that this, the new stimulus that you're experiencing by going into that type of training, that alone is enough. It's significant enough for your body to start creating adaptation. Because the main thing that's going to cause muscular adaptations to occur, it is the stress put on your body in the gym. It's, totally. You know what I mean? It's not it's not eating more protein. Protein is just helping you recover from what you do in the gym. So if you create that big stimulus, I actually think it's best to start at maintenance. Um, and that would be gain-taining. Because technically you're at maintenance, but you are gaining because you're building muscle slowly. Otherwise, if you're not a newbie, I don't think it's, I don't think it's smart. Like, I've seen some people... I've seen some clients do this, and I've done this with some clients just as a way to ease into the process because I don't want to gain too quick, where they, they're they motivated, and I think they could do really well, but they don't have much dialed in. They're just hitting their calories in training, and maybe their their fats are too high. Their carbs aren't high enough. They're not taking any supplements. At that point, I might go, hey we're going to approach it from a, a gain-taining perspective at first only because I don't want to change too many variables. Because if I'm like, hey, add these supplements, change your nutrient timing, increase carbs, decrease fat. Also, we're going to increase calories and we're going to, you know what I mean? We just start stacking too many things. 
and it'll work, but then I go, which one of those made the biggest difference, right? So what I would do in that situation is go, hey, we're going to start by taking creatine. We're going to take some like intra workout carbs, increase carbs, decrease fat, maybe tweak your training a little bit. Do all those little tiny things, the one percenters, and then we'll just wait and just see what happens. They might start gaining. We're at maintenance calories, but they start building some muscle slowly. Then from there, I'm going to go, hey, now we have to go into surplus because you can only ride that like gaining wave for so long. Um, most people, however, need to either bulk or lean gain. Mm. Um, Lean gaining would be a very, very small deficit, in my opinion. That's, again, different people have different definitions for it. But in my my thoughts is like, hey, even for myself, it's like I want to build as much muscle as possible. I just don't want to get fat. So I still call that lean gaining. And even on my last bulk, I still gained, I mean, my last lean gaining phase, I still gained some fat in the process. But I definitely didn't just didn't go hog wild like some people do and just put on as much mass as possible and get fat. Because there's health ramifications with that. So this might be a 5% calorie surplus, which is very small, but it's enough to see progress on a weekly basis. So every every week I step on the scale, I am a quarter pound, half a pound heavier, you know, something. Um, I usually look at a monthly basis as well because if you're gaining a quarter of a pound per week, I mean, it's so hard to track. You know, it's like nothing. However, a pound a month is solid. You know, that's mm-hmm. a good amount of muscle. And... Most people who have done this know that some weeks you won't gain anything and some weeks you'll gain half a pound. So it might be like nothing, nothing, half a pound, half a pound, or it might be nothing, 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 boom, you gain a pound. Um, Why? Can't explain to you. It's just how it works sometimes. The body is stubborn, then it finally gets gets going and cooperates. Um, But that would be lean gaining. It's just taking a very slow approach, whereas a bulk would be we are going to target one pound per week. You are going to accept that half of what you gain in the next three to six months is going to be fat and we're going to have to cut it. Um, I don't like taking that approach only because you are going to have to cut. The cut is going to be more difficult if you put on a lot of fat because you got a lot of fat to lose. Um, so the cut's going to be longer. It's going to have to be more aggressive and you run the risk of having uh, to losing muscle because even if you bulk and you do gain more muscle in the process, which is likely going to happen. So for example, for numbers, let's say one person lean gains and they gain five pounds over six months and the other person uh, bulks and they gain 12 pounds in six months. Well, this person that bulked is going to lose you know, half of that in fat and then a pound or two of muscle, which puts them right back at four to five pounds in that six months, which was the same as the person who lean gained. It just might have seemed slower for the person that lean gained because they had to you know, they might have even had to take longer. You know, they may, maybe it took them nine months, but the person that bulked and cut had to take three months after the bulk to cut to get back to the same place that the lean gaining person did anyway. Totally. It's just a slower process, but I think it's a healthier process. I think it's a more sustainable process for most people because most people, they get insecure and they don't want, I, I would too, I don't want to get super fat. Like the whole point of bodybuilding and building your physique is to look the part that you want to look, not overshoot it by a long shot and have to like retract to get there. Yeah. So, um, that's lean gaining. That's what I would recommend is, is, uh, taking a slow and steady approach, progressively overloading and everything that you possibly can, mainly volume. If your goal is hypertrophy and, uh, and staying a small surplus mm-hmm. three to 5%. Don't go up too bored. Yeah. All right. Good, good. All right. We have a, another question coming from Carissa Jub- Jubinski. Says hello guys. What are your thoughts on four day split versus five day split? Can you reap all the benefits of muscle building slash leaning now on a four day split? I'm thinking about it while dropping calories for the summer. Uh, short answer: 
yes. Long answer, it depends on a lot of things. I think that, like, that's so hard because, you know, I think a four, so the, the only difference really between a four and a five-day split, there's two differences. One, excuse me, is going to be preference. Two is going to be um, volume demands or volume uh, it's not even preference. Really, how much volume can you handle, right? How much volume do you need? So, for example, if somebody was talking about me and said, would I get as much out of a four-day split as a five-day split? I would say no because I'm an advanced lifter. And if I want to see significant progress, I need more volume because I've been doing this long enough to where my body just needs more of a stimulus to really adapt, right? And to create enough stress to cause an adaptation that is noticeable. And that means I'm probably going to have to train five days a week because if I was to squeeze all the volume into four days, which could be done technically on paper, I would be here for longer. Yeah. I already spend, you know, an hour and a half to two hours in the gym in, in total, which I would say this, if I like put my headphones on and went to a public gym, I wouldn't spend two hours, I guarantee. But I'm, you know, taking my time getting in here. We're shooting content while I do it. Answering I'm questions. Answering questions <laughs> on the DMs. I'm, fuck, like, trying to pull Bubba off of Travis's shoe every five minutes, <laughs> cleaning up his dog shit. Just like busy. Yeah. So, uh, but point being is, like, for me to fit enough volume for me to see significant results in four days, it's not going to happen. Now, if somebody asked that about you, I would say yes. Actually, I would say you'd get more out of four days because five would be probably overkill. It's that whole stress adaptation curve, right? Yeah. Um, for somebody who is, for for most people, four days is plenty. Yeah. Now, I would also say this. If I was in a cut, which I am in a cut right now, would the answer be the same? Probably not. I'd probably say that four days would be totally fine for somebody like me, and it would definitely be fine for somebody who's less experienced than me because during a, a cut and in a deficit, I'm not going to be building bunch of muscle. I'm going to be trying to maintain the muscle I have, which you need significantly less volume to do. So me accomplishing enough volume to maintain my current muscle mass in a, with four days is easy to do. It's simple to do. Um, but I prefer five days. And that's where it goes back to that preference thing. I just like lifting. So I'm going to lift five days. I would rather have five shorter workouts than four longer workouts. Mm. Um, Shit, I would rather have six. The only reason I don't have six days a week lifting is because it's not always predictable for me to get in here on Saturdays. So because of that, I stick to five days a week. Totally. Um, but yeah, I think that the difference really comes down to preference and then volume needs. Otherwise, there's, there, you know, a four-day could be an upper-lower or full-body or a, a, the anterior-posterior split. Um there's nothing special about that versus a upper lower push pull legs or a push pull legs or anything. It really comes down to principles. The principles are that a frequency anywhere between two to four times a week is probably best, which means that um, the more volume you need, the more the higher your frequency probably will need to be because there's diminishing returns in a single session volume. So if I was to do 20 sets in a single workout of quads. I would have diminishing returns. My fatigue would be so high that my performance would drop. And there's also some hormonal signals that happen that actually lower muscle protein synthesis once I get past about 10 to 12 sets. But if I was to split up that same amount of volume into two sessions or three sessions or four sessions, I would get way more out of it. And I'd probably actually be able to do more total volume than 20 sets per week if I did four sessions because I could split it up and manage fatigue better. But that's not to say that this split is better than that split. It's just that managing your fatigue through frequency is important and hitting enough volume for your body is important. 
managing both of those so that you can have high intensity when necessary and keep a relatively high effort in proximity to failure is the key. Those are the principles of seeing changes from your training, but none of those are tied to upper lower or push ball legs or full body or anything. They're just, they're principles. All the other things are methods for you to be able to accomplish those principles. So, um, yeah, there's nothing special about any of the splits. It's like you got to figure out what works with your schedule, what you prefer, and what allows you to abide by those principles to change your physique, and that's what's going to work. Yeah. So, totally. Yeah. Good, good. All right, we have another question uh, coming from James. It says, nice and simple. Greens versus multivitamin. Which one would you say is a better supplement? Um, man, that's tough. Honestly, in some ways... I don't think you could say one is better than the other. They're in hindsight, they're kind of the same shit. Um, I'd probably say greens. Hmm. I think that it's hard because there, you know, there's a lot of res- there's a lot more research on multivitamins uh, than greens supplements because multivitamin is such a staple generic thing and it's been around for decades. Versus greens are relatively new. Um, the thing, I, the reason I would say greens is because most people do not eat enough whole foods. They do not eat enough vegetables. They do not get enough digestive enzymes or probiotics or things like that, all of which are going to be found in a greens product, right? So like if you look at, uh, obviously we use First Forms. If you look at OptiGreens, it has all of those things and it has a ton of vitamins and minerals inside of it. What is a multivitamin? It's a pill with vitamins and minerals. Um, First Forms is is a packet, so you don't get one pill. You actually get like a packet and it has like multiple pills in it and that's their multivitamin um multiple vitamins yeah <laughs> literally and it's actually better because if you look at most multivitamins it's 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 one a day like there's actually one called one a day it's probably one of the most famous popular multivitamins one a day for men one a day for women um there's no fucking way you can fit enough vitamins and minerals in one pill you just can't you'll get underdosed on everything and you're just swallowing money it's pointless literally so Love. something something like First forms, it's a packet. You got to take five or six pills in there. But, and I will say it's pretty dope because it comes in like a box that you just like, have you seen it where you just open the yeah. thing and it just spits them out it's like a dispenser? Yep. But it's perfect for travel. I just grab a bunch of the bags and throw it in my pack. Yeah. But it's nice. Like the reason I recommend multivitamins to most people is because it, it just works as an insurance policy, yeah. right? Like, do you need it? No. You can just eat real food and you'll be totally fine. Like, you don't need a multivitamin. But, it acts as just kind of like uh, you're covering your bases. You know, you're getting that extra bit, especially if you're pursuing fat loss and training hard. You are going to be more likely to be susceptible to uh, more susceptible to becoming deficient in water and fat soluble vitamins because you're in a calorie deficit, so fats are probably lower. You're losing body fat, so your fat is lowering on your body. Both of those things are going to cause you to uh, store less fat soluble vitamins, like vitamin D and things like that. Um, that's why I always double down on vitamin D, especially when I'm uh, in a cut, I'll take twice as much as normal. Um, and then the water-soluble ones, if you're like me, I'm drinking my big-ass first-form jug that's, I don't think it's a gallon. It's got to be like, I think it's like 70, 75 ounces or something like that. So it's like uh, three-quarters of a gallon. There's a lot of water. And then I drink that big-ass one when I'm work right? So I'm peeing constantly, long story short. Then I'm training, so I'm sweating, right? Most people who are pursuing their journey do both of those things a lot. Well, guess what? You're going to be water. Uh, you're going to be potentially deficient in water soluble vitamins, which means that you have to take those. So it's it's important. You can get it through food, but I think it's kind of a nice insurance policy to just make sure you don't got to be too particular. Yeah. Because I think if you're already tracking macros and then you're also trying to like zone in on exactly what kind of foods you should eat to get enough vitamin K and E and 
you go crazy. Yep. You got such minutia, you know, it just becomes t- tough. Um, but like I said, the greens is nice because a lot of people don't get enough uh, greens in their diet. Um, Dude, I love the greens drink. Yeah. It's so good with Crystal Light. Yeah, and it's a nice way to start your day. Yeah. You know what's crazy? There's, the Opti Greens actually tastes way better by itself than most greens. I think it's is funny. That the, is that the same thing as First Form one? First Forms is called Opti Greens. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've had a lot of greens drinks, and some taste so fucking bad. It's like I can't even choke them down. I've thrown away full bottles of yeah. greens, like literally. Yeah, I don't know. That one is good. Yeah. Like, I still put crystallite in it because it just makes it taste Absolutely. Because why not? Yeah. But I think it's funny when people are like, no, it tastes great. And I'm like, okay, no greens drink actually tastes good by itself. By itself. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think any of them taste actually good. I don't like drinking grass, you know? Yeah. But this is the best gr- tasting grass I've ever had. <laughs> yeah. um, I, like, thoroughly enjoy drinking in the morning. Yeah, me yeah. too. And, it's a, it, dude, it's just a good way to start your day. Yeah. Reds, not so much. I, that surprises me because the reds taste way better to me. No. Yeah. Great. But um, do you like beets? Nope. You can probably taste the beets in it. That's probably why it does it. I, I like I've beets. I've never had beets, but. Beets are really good. Yeah, you probably haven't because that's how you are. You're like, I don't like these. And then you try it and you're like, oh, these are actually good. Yeah, well, I tried it and they're not good. <laughs> so <laughs> the reds. Um, the uh, the reds is, is not as crucial as the greens in my opinion. One, because there's on a on – a, this is this is not proven by research, but I would imagine that way more people, a higher percentage of people are likely to be eating fruit than they are vegetables. Mm. Fruit just tastes better than vegetables yeah. on average for most people. Um but I think it's nice to add that in uh, for for the cardiovascular and oxidative process because that's what like that's why beets are so helpful. It's really good for oxidative uh, purposes and blood flow. Um, I first started eating things or drinking things with and taking things with beetroot powder and juice in it because it improves vascularity and uh, oxygen mm. through the blood and into the muscle. So you get an, a better pump in the gym. Mm. Um, that's why like you remember like No Explode. Okay, so uh, a lot of there was a lot of like that like C four or like kind of it oh, was yeah. one of those yeah uh, it was I really popular right. but it was like but it's like this ox uh, no it was uh, nitric oxide is what they called it and there was a like Argentine or Argentine um, yeah Argentine was like a big thing that they were trying to put in stuff but they realized that it's not. It's not the best way to do it. It's actually better to have citrulline malate, and that converts to that uh, to arginine in the blood anyway. But beetroot powder is like a natural way to get those things mm. up. Interesting. Get, yeah. yeah. Um, but greens is – I would probably go with greens if I had to, to be honest with you. I think – Yeah, I do greens in the morning and then reds in, for dinner. Yep. But. Solid. Cool, man. All right, that was it. Um, make sure to go check out the YouTube channel. We just dropped a new video of a day in the life of eating when – uh, doing a photo shoot prep, so yeah, check that out. I figured I was thinking about that this morning. We're probably gonna have to shoot another one because even like, I hope we shoot multiple. I'm just saying, like before the photo shoot's done. You know oh yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. Um, I'm three pounds lighter than I was when we shot that video. Yep. which is perfect. It's on point. I mean, we shot it like two, three weeks ago, but um, but it would be cool to be like, you know, four weeks after that one. You know, see, yeah. see how we're doing and everything. Um, but yeah, you, I take you guys through my entire day, literally from the moment I wake up, um, and you see every meal, my parts of bits and parts of my routine, but we're mainly focusing on the food so you guys can see, uh, what my meals are like, where my macros are at. And we literally tally up the macros as the day goes. So you'll see exactly what I'm eating at the time. Unfortunately, my calories are a little bit lower now than they were in the video, <laughs> but not by much. Um, and I break all that down. 
Blakely has a meal with me. Uh, it's a cool video. So uh, I've never been big on like the day in life or the eating videos, but after doing it, I was like, it's kind of dope. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought it was cool. So um, as always, guys, we appreciate you for listening and we will catch you next time. 